0: Are you ready to go?
1: Yeah, totally. Ready to
0: go. Yo, welcome to my summer lair. I am Sammy Yunan. your happy and honest host. That terrible pun uh, will make sense in a moment. All right, here we go. Introduce yourself and share your favorite thing about living in toronto it could be food it could be a certain location or certain neighborhood it could be the people whatever you want so introduce yourself and share your favorite thing about uh, living in toronto
1: hi my name is lulu Wei, and i'm the director of there's no place like this place any place and i think my favorite thing about living in toronto is uh the community in toronto of like the I guess, the diverse community in Toronto, the queer community, the BIPOC community that's here. As someone who is, like, queer and a person of color, it really makes me feel at home to be a part of this community Mm -hmm. in Toronto.
0: Uh, It's the meeting place, right? That's one of the definitions of Toronto?
1: I I, I didn't know that, but (laughs) that is great to know.
0: Okay. Uh, as you mentioned, you are the director of There's No Place Like This Place, Any Place, which is notable for being a uh, Honest Ed's documentary, but it's a little bit more than just an Honest Ed's documentary. Like, how are you describing this documentary?
1: Well, I think that because, one, you have a lot of stuff about Honest Ed's, like, I guess in our poster, and we have a lot of archival footage out there, I think people think that it's just a a documentary that Honest Ed's, when really it's a documentary about the redevelopment of the Honest Ed's block, which also includes Mervish Village as well, and the black community that was at Boer and Bathurst.
0: As you kind of go through the documentary, you were living uh, basically next door to Honest Ed's, and then all of a sudden it got sold, and you and your partner were displaced, and you had to find a new place to live. But you also document a number of other people who we're grappling with either being displaced or trying to figure out what this neighborhood now looked like or what, how it would evolve and change. So I want to ask if I can ask a slightly mean question. Um, If honest Ed's hadn't closed down, if that whole process hadn't started, would you have still taken the time to like get to know your neighborhood and the people that were in it? Like, do we need these closures in a sense to remind us not to take these things for granted and kind of investigate who our neighbors and our community are?
1: I think that is a very important question to ask and I think that's an important question that we should all be thinking about yeah like would we want to spend this time or get to know our own neighborhoods if we uh, knew that they would be there forever because oftentimes we do take all of this for granted and I think that is an important thing that we should all be thinking about because Toronto is changing and you know you see a building or something that you love right here and then you turn around and you look back and it's gone. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think that really is important. And like, I love honest eds. I will say I love not loved. And I went there all the time. And with Markham street and Mervish village, I had been going there as well, but I didn't get to know it as much until I heard, you know, it was all closing down and you know, a different book list is just such an amazing thing, and I'm happy that it'll continue
0: to live on. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting tension because, like you said, you love present tense on its ads, and a lot of trontonians feel this way. And we saw that as it was closing down, as it got sold, people were really had a lot of emotions, a lot of strong emotions. Yet at the same time, people are also comfortable going shopping at Walmart and, like, you know what I mean? Other stores. So it's a weird thing where, like, the way that we show love to Honest Ed's doesn't align with what we're saying. If that makes sense, it's a weird tension how we kind of like yeah. live with the two things.
1: Totally. I mean, that's something I grappled with all the time. In that, you know, I would tell people I was making this documentary, and a lot of people would, you know, talk about how much they love and miss Honest Ed's. And then I would ask, "When is the last time you actually went to Honest Ed's?" And they're like, oh, it's been a very long time or I used to go as a kid or my grandparents used to go and stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's true. Like, you know, especially during COVID times, I'm sure a ton of us are online shopping and like people are going to, you know, dollar stores and Walmart. But you know what I think is the main thing is a lot of the community um, that were shop, like the immigrant community that were shopping at Honest Ed's and uh, the surrounding community in that neighborhood they got pushed out. They were pushed out of the downtown. Things became unaffordable. Like, you know, who can live downtown anymore? It's really hard to live downtown. Mm-hmm. And so I think all of these forces combined, you know, really led to Honest Ed's not being as successful as before. And, you know, David murgish in the film talks about that a bit. And, you know, there is a lifespan of, of a store in a way. And when, stores are not needed anymore and you can't really function like as a museum when you're a store.
0: That's a good way to put it, yeah.
1: Yeah, it is a hard thing to think about like how do we reconcile the fact that we love certain buildings and we love certain spaces but we are living in a housing crisis and we have to find good usages of space and figure out how to create more spaces for people to live um, but at the same time, I think we need to think about why it ended up this way. And that has to do a lot with affordability.
0: Yeah. I like there's a, a subplot uh, that was running a little bit through the documentary where you talk about how honest ads was initially like this focal point for immigrants. So they would come to the city and this is where they would get their initial like plates and clothes and all the things that they need to basically set up this new life in Canada and in Toronto. And what you're talking about too is like the evolution of how things have evolved i'm egyptian for example so when a lot of egyptians come to canada now or come to toronto we have a large enough community that we can then like everyone can like here's a couch i don't use anymore here's this i don't use anymore. you know what i mean like we can get this Mm -hmm. new immigrant kind of set up so they don't have to have that same honest eds experience um and i think that's kind of like what you're also talking about in the documentary is that evolution too right we're like we used to do things a one way and then now uh, because these communities have grown and evolved, um, I guess mm-hmm. we need to find a better way now to kind of serve them or address them.
1: Yeah, for sure. And um, and I think that th- that was like such a big part for a lot of these immigrant communities. But I think what another big thing is, is that it was a safe space. It was like, as Deb Cowan in the film, the prof in the film, talks about how, you know, it's hard to find... Spaces that you can just go to and feel comfortable in. It's like, it, you know, it wasn't fancy, it wasn't inaccessible, and it was somewhere where a lot of immigrants and different working class folks could just go and feel comfortable and you wouldn't get bugged or bothered. <laughs> and Toronto doesn't seem like it's creating more of these spaces, and it doesn't feel like a lot of these spaces have a place in the Toronto that we're
0: creating. Yeah, and I guess that's partly why the the communities have kind of stepped up in a way. Because as Honest Eds and stuff fades away, it's like, well, then new immigrants are still coming. I mean, Toronto's a very um, exciting destination for a lot of immigrants across different cultures, different ethnicities, all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff. And so it's like, you can't just dump somebody in a city like Toronto and like, well, here you go, he's a subway map, <laughs> hope you figure things yeah. out, right? Like, it's kind of mean, so you need, like you said, like safe spaces or places to kind of get set up because it takes such a long time to kind of properly establish yourself.
1: Yeah, and even just a, a safe, comfortable place to just hang out in.
0: So did making this documentary, did this change your feelings about Toronto or did they have feelings about Toronto evolve? How did it impact your relationship with Toronto?
1: Well, I mean, I moved to Toronto in 2009 for grad school and I grew up in like a smaller white conservative city so coming to toronto it was like wow you know oh, much bigger city is way more diverse there's like a queer community here and it just feels more like home compared to you know the city i grew up in and it i think how my mind has changed is more just how i think it's so much like more important nowadays to think about who the city is being built for and how do we ensure like the neighborhoods we love like Chinatown Kensington Market you know like little Jamaica and all these different places how they can survive through everything and I think that we just have to think about like Aita who is the owner of a different book list how to get a seat at the table when it comes to gentrification and find ways to create spaces for ourselves and not just, you know, get Mm -hmm. displaced and not be able to stay in these communities. But I think that's like a bigger political issue. And it's really gotten me to think about the politics of the city and the politics of city planning and developing like developers kind of thing. And Yeah, I mean, I love Toronto, and I think I will always continue to have a love for and a heart, a faith in my heart for Toronto. But I just hope that there will be a place for all of us in in Toronto's future. It's
0: really interesting, because in the documentary, you just said now, like, who is the city being built for? And in the documentary, you had all these really unique competing visions, basically, for the city. Uh, you mentioned the the different book list crew uh, and they were trying to preserve a lot of the um, like the black historical roots as well as make like a like a welcoming safe space as we just said for said, but just kind of like for that community um, mm-hmm. and at the same t- same time you had like a city councilor um, you had the corporation uh, whats west bank west bank sorry obviously that's what their function is right their job is to build homes and to do condos and rental places and stuff like that so they're fulfilling their purpose it's just not necessarily a purpose we would all agree with and so you have these different kind of competing visions for what toronto should be or could be or will be and it's difficult because the city never stays static so it's i don't know how you resolve because all of them were like making legitimate points or they had a place there, like like, the corporation legitimately bought the place, you know what I mean? So it's not like they did anything shady or wrong or anything. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So
1: mm-hmm.
0: I don't know how you necessarily resolve those tensions. I guess you just kind of learn to live with them.
1: Yeah, I think it's important to, to think about how, you know, like a lot of gentrification films and stories are really like David versus Goliath, sort of like um, Displaced versus uh, Developers. And I didn't necessarily want to make a film about that. I wanted to make a film that showed the complexity of the situation and all the nuances. And I mean, especially like I was myself displaced and I don't think that you can talk about uh, redevelopment and without saying the words gentrification and displacement, because those are literally just describing things. Mm -hmm. That's not language. That's like, you know with a bias or anything it's like people were displaced that's a fact like yeah. gentrification is happening that's a fact and these are all facts so i'm just trying to present all the facts and i'm trying to get people to you know decide how they feel and i also want to have people think about the future and yeah that who are we building these cities for and what is our place in these cities and to think about what you can do like yourself to try and raise your voice and make a decision on what kind of city you want to live in and so I think I'm trying to create a story where you can see all these points but you get to decide for yourself how you feel about it in the way that you know I was living there and it was affecting me directly and you know when I took a step back I was like okay this is a much bigger issue and I have to talk about all of these aspects and you know at the same time we have to think about how to preserve these places that we like but also where do we build new places for people to live but more importantly how do we get those places to be affordable because what's the point of building you know rental or have mixed use spaces when those are going to be unaffordable Mm -hmm. for you know, the majority of people who live in the city or a lot of people who live in the city. Yeah, I find,
0: like, visiting New York City is like uh, like that friend you haven't seen for a while, like maybe a year or two, and then all of a sudden, like, they clearly have lost a lot of weight or they have a different haircut. Like, you notice that right away, and that's sometimes, too, a gentrification. Like, because we live in Toronto and we go in these communities all the time, the changes sometimes are very subtle, but when you fly to, like, a city like New York City and you haven't been there for a couple of years... And you go to a neighborhood mm-hmm. that you kind of know. You're like, oh man, that the ice cream shop is gone, and this place is gone, and the bookstore is gone, and it's like you just get like a. Uh, it's a weird store that's kind of like a CVS, Drugs, or something, a pharmacy that's kind of replacing. You're like, that's not cool. Like the bookstore is much cooler.
1: Yeah, and and especially like we don't need any more A and Ws and like Rexalls and Shopper Drug Mart's because I'm like, how is it that every time you see redevelopment, it's always these big box stores coming in and it's like, they have the money mm-hmm. to do that. So,
0: so then is gentrification inevitable or like, can you halt it or is it like, can you delay it or like in the battle for gentrification? Like, can we just put up roadblocks or make speed bumps for it at least?
1: Well, I I mean, I think that like redevelopment is inevitable. Cities are constantly evolving. Cities are constantly changing. I think one of the most interesting things that I learned through this whole process was story that is briefly told in the film by um, someone who has a store on, uh, or a studio on Markham street in Mervish village. She talks about how honest Ed, uh, like Ed Mervish, he bought up all these homes on Markham street because the city had told him Way back, that there was just too much traffic and congestion, and he had to find somewhere to build a parking lot to deal with all the traffic and and congestion. So he bought up the homes and he was going to turn it into a parking lot. But then a different, like, city council or alderman or something was like, Actually, you can't tear these homes down. Mm -hmm. And because his wife was an artist and a lot of artists were looking for spaces, because in another area of the city, they had just been pushed out of there he decided to make it an, an artist colony. And so I think what's most special about looking back on that is, you know, currently are we building, you know, what is equivalent of a parking lot or are we building what will become like the equivalent of a Mervish village? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's such an interesting way to think yeah. about things is like, you know, if you look back, that was an instance where, because of like city council and political forces and will, um, that changed how things happen. And so I think it's important to think about how do we keep building Mervish villages rather than parking lots.
0: So how are you describing the tone of this documentary? Is it hopeful or resigned or uh, factual, as you said? Like, how would you describe the tone? Because I know some of the stuff we've just been talking about the last little while it seems almost negative or or um, sad, I guess, in a way. But the documentary is not a sad documentary.
1: I I mean, because we've only been talking about one aspect of it. Mm. Um, I think you know, obviously, ha- seeing a a community that was there and like kind of touching upon what was there, and seeing old archival footage of Anastas and touching upon what it was. Um, I think it's a nice sort of heartfelt. Um, look at it and sort of like a way to pay homage to it it was almost my way of like saying goodbye to that community and I hope that people will get to watch it and say goodbye and reminisce in their own way Mm -hmm. and then um, the other aspect is really like the resilience of the black community at Lauren and Bathurst and I think that needs to be celebrated I think it was so important for me to get to show and talk about the history of this community at Bloor & because a lot of people don't know about it. A lot of people think about Honest Eds and Mervish Village and I want to make sure that people understood that the Black community has been at Bloor & Bathurst for so many years and they have a root there and there's been so many families that have grown up there like, you know, like Central Tech Field used to have a ton of houses there and so many people grew up there and so yeah, I really wanted to make sure I could show that community and how Aita has persevered and her resilience on finding a space for the Black community to carry on and having a diverse uh, community center space there. I think is so important to see, especially during these times that we're going through right now, especially with what we're seeing in the States and even in Canada with the injustices is that the black community is facing
0: mm-hmm.
1: i think it's important to get to see this community that was there and their resilience
0: you you just talked about community like can communities survive any communities survive if we keep losing these places because i mean that was the challenge obviously in the last few months with people doing a lot of zoom meetings and facetimes and other things like that like, do we still need spaces moving forward or has like this pandemic kind of taught us that communities can survive without public spaces?
1: Um, I think that that's a very good question. Um, I think we definitely, we, we definitely need physical spaces. I don't think there's a doubt about that. I think even though um, we've been more connected than ever through the internet and through like Zooming and like web video chatting. We also haven't felt so isolated before. And, you know, a lot of the stores on Markham Street, uh, like Suspect Video and Bates Platoon, which was a Palestinian community center, they went online. And there's just something very different about going online and trying to, Mm -hmm. you know, create community and space that way. And there's just something so different about having physical spaces with like brick and mortar spaces that can bring people together. Um, I think it's amazing that we're able to, you know, connect with people internationally, online. And it feels like a lot of like boundaries of like borders have been broken online, but at the same time, we're so isolated right now and craving like physical human interaction Mm -hmm. and being together And also, I think it's so important to create physical spaces for marginalized folks. And yeah, I just think that um, physical space is really important. And who has access to these physical spaces is incredibly important. And at the beginning of um, the film, I do have a land acknowledgement, because I think it's important to remember that, you know, this displacement of peoples has been happening time immemorial where Mm -hmm. you know this land didn't belong to us and we need to recognize that and find ways to continue to see our own privilege and fight for decolonization
0: was this always the plan then to spend four years making this documentary or did suddenly when honest ed like got sold and was going to get shut down did that galvanize you into action
1: It definitely wasn't the plan that I was going to make my first feature film uh, with this film. I was working like a full time job when I just started filming all of this because I come from like a filming cinematography background. Um, I was seeing how the neighborhood was changing, and I was worried that if I didn't just document what the neighborhood was like, then no one in the future would get to see how special, you know, all of these artist spaces and studios and stores and Honest Eds was. And so it started out as sort of me trying to make a time capsule of mm-hmm. it all. And then one thing led to another and <laughs> I got displaced. And so I started pointing the camera on myself and mm-hmm. yeah, I just, it ended up <laughs> becoming a feature film.
0: Do you feel like that people outside of Toronto, I mean, obviously we all have a lot of uh, emotions and connections to honest Eds, But what you're talking about of communities, trying to find a space, um, gentrification, uh, displacement, these are words you've used. Um, These are common themes everywhere. But because sometimes the Honest Ed thing kind of takes a bigger um, perspective, and I know you use it in the poster and things like that, will people be able to connect with this documentary outside of Toronto?
1: I think people will for sure be able to connect to um, this documentary because of how it deals with, you know, These struggles that we all have as a city and personally about how do we sort of preserve parts of the city and look into our past and also figure out where our cities are going and how to build better, more, you know, sustainable, accessible cities that, you know, everyone can live in. And so I think that would be a a way people can connect to this. And because it is a character driven story, there's some really strong people like Gabor and Aita who have great storylines and are just wonderful people that I think anyone watching would feel an affinity towards. Um, I think people can connect for sure to the people uh, in the heart of the story, as well as, you know, when they see the kooky wackiness of, Honest Eds mm-hmm. will be able to like see that and feel the nostalgia too. Like there's just so much nostalgia around honest eds. And I think that, you know, I sent the film to um someone like in a rough cut when we were trying to get feedback who had never been to Honest Eds and uh, you know, was a uh, European and She said, she was like, i never even been there. I didn't know what it was, but I even feel the nostalgia and like Mm -hmm. the yearning for going here, even though I didn't even know what this thing was. So Mm -hmm. I'm glad that I was able to convey that and make a story that everyone could somewhat connect to.
0: Is that nostalgia showing up on, uh, I guess, IG and Facebook where you're at? Uh, Because as, as people kind of come forward, are they just sharing stories or videos or photos of themselves and their experiences with Honest Eds?
1: Yeah, I think it's amazing to, like, hear so many people's stories. Like, I've had such nice reviews or just comments from people who've watched the film who really felt like I was able to sort of articulate somehow or, like, put on screen how they've been feeling about missing Honest Eds, but also where their cities are going. And it's so nice to hear so many people tell me their personal stories about going Honest Eds and I think that one of the great bits in the film is Brandon, the construction worker, you know, like he was saying that his parents, when they first moved to Canada from Portugal, like they would go to Anastas and he now has to take down Mm -hmm. his like parents' memory, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of like ideas about history and remembering and memory within the film.
0: Yeah, you also had that sweet moment where there was a couple who got married at Honest Ed's, and they had, I think it was their first date at the Honest Ed's. hmm
1: hmm
0: Yeah, it's just, there's, like, we were talking before, where, like, yeah, maybe people haven't gone in the last couple of years when it uh, was still alive, but the memories that they do have are, sh- are strong enough and sharp enough that it's like, oh, yeah, like, it, it, it has resonance, and it still has profound impact.
1: Yeah, like, it was so special for so many people And it's hard to think that somewhere that was just considered, you know, like a bargain store Mm -hmm. would have this effect. But it was so much more than that. And I hope that I was able to convey that in the film and provide a way for people to look back and, you know, reminisce and take a walk down memory lane sort of thing.
0: Yeah, I don't want to do the cliche thing of just like uh, crapping on like big box stores and things like that. But there's a there's a flatness and a boringness to them. You know what I mean? Like, you said, like, you mentioned, like, Rexall and Sharp as Rugmar and stuff. You go there and you get your toothbrush or something and then you leave and it's fine and whatever. But, like, that style and that kitsch and, like, the garish things that were on the walls. <laughs> Anna said, like, it's much more of an experience. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, you kind of get involved well, in it.
1: I know, like, I mean, we, we couldn't include in the film, but, like, um, Franka, who's worked for the Murdershires for so many years she was telling us about how like Ed Mervish loved like carnivals and he loved certainly certain certain colors and he just wanted everything to sort of have that aesthetic. And I think, and that he wanted it to be fun. He wanted it to be an experience when you shop there, like Mm -hmm. not only was it a place you bought stuff, it's like you went there for an experience and you don't really see that much of that anymore and especially it was an independent business it was like independently owned by this man and his family and you know like a lot of stores we see these days are big corporations and you don't see how you know mom and pop stores could really survive like you know george's chicken that's in the neighborhood across Mm -hmm. the street it's been there forever and
0: yeah
1: you know i got to chat with them while making the film and it didn't make it into the cut but you know they've been there for so many years and like they're struggling and like a lot of stores in the annex are struggling too because the rent is just so expensive and one thing I actually don't talk about is how commercial rent uh, is not rent controlled and so people are constantly losing their storefronts because the rent is just too expensive and so how do we you know keep these spaces and these stores alive when everything is just getting more expensive.
0: Yeah, we've seen that um, negative evolution on Queen Street. Queen Street used to be really cool, uh, had a really lot of um, unique shops, and um, you could find really uh, unusual gear there. And then just over the last couple of years, especially as much music and stuff kind of shut down or went to like uh, reality TV shows and stuff, stopped bringing in bands and stuff, the vibe and the whole... Mm-hmm. ethos i guess of the street just kind of changed and it just became just like another street now it's not long no longer it doesn't have the lore it's not like queen street anymore mm-hmm. it's just uh queen street
1: well you know yorkville um actually used to be like a hippie spot mm-hmm. with a ton of artists until it just became this i'm like i don't even know what it is anymore <laughs> inaccessible unaffordable like fancy high end brand name place yeah. and that's actually where a lot of the artists were kicked out of, and that's why um, they. And then they moved to Mervish Village. So a lot of those artists actually ended up moving to, to Mervish Village because that was a new spot. So yeah, I mean it's an ongoing thing where places are continuously redeveloped, and I think it's it is inevitable what's happening, but how do we sort of make space for? artists and like what really makes a city great and what would attract people to go to a city how do we make that space but also you know see that it's cyclical and that redevelopment needs to happen
0: yeah and i think that's why your doc is really timely because now with everything shut down during this pandemic we're forced to ask these questions and we're seeing a lot of really prominent places kind of close down record shops and bookshops and things like that, that just are restaurants too, are ju- that are just not going to make it uh, by the time we reopen or somehow get back to normal or, or new normal. And so I think it's your doc is timely because it is forcing us to ask these questions, to grapple these questions and like, what kind of neighborhoods do we want to go back to? And what kind of communities do we want mm-hmm. to go back to? So the, uh, the timing of it is kind of, um, you didn't obviously plan it, but the timing of it is well done. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's it's kind of a you know it's a shock I think, for all of us. Mm-hmm. And originally, you know, when we found out we got into the festival, um, mm-hmm. nothing had shut down yet, and there were, we already like booked it in our calendars that you know it'd be premiering at the Bloor Hot Dog Cinema, like right around the corner from Anasays. Mm-hmm. And then we had booked a different book list, and we were going to walk from the cinema to the bookstore and have a little after get together there where everybody can meet everyone and mm-hmm. look across the street to the site and it would have been such an immersive experience and yeah had you know we didn't obviously plan for any of this to happen but I hope that you know a lot of these themes are resonating more with people when they're thinking about like how so many people have lost their jobs and so many stores have had to close down and yeah who will survive this and what kind of city are we going to end up with after Mm -hmm. COVID? And yeah, and you see it with the disparity now, um, like the polarization of the city where, you know, a lot of the wealthy people have cottages and then can go to those and they have like pools in their backyards or, you know, they can socially distance much more easily Mm -hmm. than people who are living in apartment buildings or, you know, not necessarily, able to stay home and not work and so yeah i think these are all things that are good for people to think about and especially when they're watching this film and i hope that'll resonate with them even more
0: just to wrap up uh, as we're coming to the end i want to do focus on the end and i think that's sometimes difficult too you had that one artist uh, it was a lovely old man gabor
1: gabor yeah Yeah.
0: and um He obviously was, like, quite elderly. He had to be at least in his, like, 70s, right? He's 86.
1: 86,
0: okay. I thought I was giving him, I was kind of giving him (laughs) a little less. Uh, (laughs) uh, But, yeah, so, but I think that's also something difficult, too, that we kind of also don't talk about is, like, with a lot of creative stuff, you don't necessarily retire. Like, if you're a teacher or a lawyer or an accountant, you kind of get to a certain age and then you retire and then you get the gold watch and you kind of go home. But with a lot of creativity and a lot of artists and things like that, it just doesn't end. Like you keep working basically until you die. <laughs> like there isn't any retirement. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, I would assume mm-hmm. that you as a filmmaker would want to keep going uh, as far as you can until your health gives out. So yeah, it's a weird thing too. Cause it's one of the things we never really have talked about, which is like, how do you end things that can potentially go on for a while?
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's great that you picked up on that because, you know, it was just so amazing to become friends with Gabor and like, just chat with him and have him open his life up to me and I mean I kept filming with him and there's parts that we couldn't fit into the film but like his health has deteriorated since and you know like having COVID happen Mm -hmm. definitely not helped and I'm constantly worried about him but it's just like this drive that he had like even when we went to his studio that he had to give up he would say oh I feel bad that I'm not going to the studio enough or like working on painting enough and I'm like boy you're in your mid-80s like (laughs) it's totally okay you don't have to feel guilty about this like you're allowed to like relax and stuff but I think what's so cool is that he shows that you can continue to have this drive and I think that's what kept is keeping him going is like his painting and like having a purpose and just wanting to create art and Mm. i think it's just so cool to see that and to see also his resilience in a way especially for like an older generation
0: so the documentary is there's no place like this place any place um and it's on now until june 10 at hot docs where can people find you online or information about the documentary online
1: Uh, Well, we have a website called, uh, and it's there's no place like this And so they can check out our website, and we have updated info about different screenings. For people in Vancouver, we will, uh, this will be like screening at their online festival, uh, DOCSA, the Vancouver Documentary Film Festival, in mid June. And you can follow us on Instagram uh, and Facebook. It's there's no place like this place.
0: All right, great. Uh, thank you, Lulu, for the documentary and for um, forcing us to ask tough questions and to try and figure out uh, what it is that we want out of Toronto and what kind of Toronto we are building towards and what kind of Toronto we hope for. So thank you,
1: Lulu. Um, thanks so much for having me on, on the podcast mm-hmm. and for raising such great questions. It's been really nice to have a good conversation about this.
0: Oh, cool. Thank you. Uh, before I let you go, I want to uh, just share with you is um, I have a number of friends uh, in the comic book community in New York City and a couple of other places. And so they would come next door to the beguiling. I think you had a couple of shots mm-hmm. of
1: them, uh, yeah them yeah.
0: in the in that neighborhood. And so when I would go out to visit them, like they'd be just doing a signing and stuff. So I drop by. It might be the first time they're ever in Toronto or one of the yeah visits, and so I was like, "You gotta check out Honest Ed since we're just around the corner," <laughs> and I would take them in there, and they would always be like blown away, like all the stuff they've seen in New York City and everything like this. What is this place? This is crazy. How do you guys like? And they just this couldn't is, wrap. How their... does
1: this exist? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And just
0: couldn't wrap their heads around it. And Beguiling, of course, obviously moved later on. Yeah. Um, which is kind of sad and stuff like that. And it's I'm glad it's still there and it's doing its thing. But it, it, there's mm. something that you lose, and I can't fully articulate or identify it. It's like a, it's like when you eat a sandwich, and you know it's, like, missing mustard or something. A sandwich is, is fine, but it's, like, oh, if it had some mustard or something. Well,
1: I think it's because it was, like, it was just this tiny, quirky community on this, like, one street, right? And mm-hmm. so it's, like, you could just pop back and forth and, like everybody knew each other and like Ju- Julia and my son who owns Gigi's House of Frills she was like oh it's just like living on a, on a being on a tv show because it's like this interesting community where like you all sort of know each other and talk to each other and I think you lose that on like big streets like college where the beguiling moves to mm-hmm. yeah so like maybe that sense of community is sort of gone and what I think is so cool is the aesthetics of honest ed like the signs, the hand-painted signs, and I felt so lucky. Um, I was able to hire the sign painter, Dougie Kerr, mm-hmm. who was one of the original sign painters, to do all of the cre- like to do the credit sequence for me, and to paint all the lower thirds for me in the film, and to paint the title.
0: Yeah, that was really neat too. I like that part. What did you end up doing with all the signs at the end there?
1: Um, well, they actually all got scanned by our animation company. And so I'm going to take the signs and I'm going to bike them probably to the different people in the film and, and get to give them the signs to keep. Oh, that would be really nice. That's a nice
0: memento. Yeah,
1: I just think uh, just thought that it would be a cool thing to do. And it's just, yeah, there's something so special about it, the hand-painted sign. It sort of like conveys the idea that, you know, Honest edge wasn't slick. It was sort of this like, you know, it was like the hand-painted sign of today, right? It was like that analog thing mm-hmm. for a digital world. Yeah.
0: Sorry, I know I've kept you longer than we should have talked. But, no, uh, all good. And I know you don't have uh, a background in, like, urban design. You're not like Jane Jacobs or something like that. But now all of a sudden, you because you made this thing, you become this um, mm-hmm. spokesperson, basically, for all these different themes. And it's weird to be in this position when you kind of don't really have the authority or the the full background and the knowledge to kind of articulate all this.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it is hard in that I don't, like, this isn't my background. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm happy that there is a platform that I can try and use my voice to, to raise questions for people to further look at these things and try and decide for themselves on how to you know decide what kind of city they want to want to live in and what i think is the most interesting and amazing thing about everybody in the film is you know like the video store you know suspect video died and like all these other places got displaced but you know a bookstore like a black owned bookstore was resilient and it's interesting that you know they've been able to carry on and don't thrive when a lot of other bookstores have closed so i i just think
0: that's just so amazing it speaks to what you're saying before about the strength of the community mm-hmm. that's why i was trying to highlight that gap where like everyone loves honest ads but then we're all, like you said we're all shopping at like walmart or dollar store mm-hmm. or other places it's the equivalent of like you when you're in a relationship and somebody says to you i've been thinking about you all day but they didn't call or text or like email <laughs> you know what i mean yeah so it's yeah. like that's kind of love, but it's not really love. Like you need to send something or like do something to kind of show Mm -hmm. that you love. And I think that some communities are unfortunately better at that. And the black community is really one of those ones where they're really strong and their identity is really strong and you know how to rally around those things and kind of preserve those things.
1: Well, I think when you're from a marginalized community, you understand that in order to thrive and survive, you have to support each other.
0: All right, that's a positive note. We can kind of end it there. Thank you so much for your time.
1: <laughs> no, thank you for chatting with me about it. And um, I hope that you enjoyed the film. And yeah, I hope that, you know, we can all watch it at the Bloor sometime in the future when we can all be in a theater together. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that would
0: be fun. Yeah, it'll be good. I do miss going to the movies. I do admit, like, uh, this whole pandemic thing has kind of taught us, like, what what you kind of value. And I'm like... Man, I really do miss going to the movies. I just want to go see something stupid, but like anything. I just miss I miss the sticky floors, I miss the popcorn, all of it.
1: I think I mean that's like like the point you said before like would people miss certain things or go to them if, you know, they knew that they could have that forever. Like it's like we only miss things or think about them when we finally realize they're not going to be there for us. Mhm. All right.
0: Have a good day, Lulu.
1: Yeah, you
0: too. Before I go, I must apologize for failing to bring up Mr. T's Honest Ed's visit. He came to the store in 1984 taking a break from his typical Toys R Us tour. Honest Ed's is no longer with us, but Mr. T is, and that should be recognized and celebrated. And part of my A-team is photographer Henry Vandersbeck, who is burdened with photoshopping Tiger Beat Heat into the photos he takes of me. Over the years, with a passion for the city of Toronto, he's taken some outstanding Honest Eds photos. If you go to IG, you can see him under the name Culture Snap. Tell him Sammy sent you. And if you're going to IG anyways, follow me. I can always use the self-esteem boost. I am my pal Sammy on IG, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you so much for listening to me in a Netflix world. Honest Eds, yo.